Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hello, good morning. Welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray with you until 11 a.m. dealing with the issues of the moment. If you want to get in touch, you can call us on 0419832000 or you can text or send us a message on WhatsApp on 0861800658. Well, now, as you are probably aware, the government basically gave away 1.3 billion euro yesterday back to the public. The new package includes a bonus of 100 euro per child for families, 150 euro for all welfare recipients, and an extension of excise duty cuts on motor fuels before the cuts are phased out. A litre of petrol will increase by 6 cent on June 1st, and diesel will increase by 5 cent on the same date. There's been a lot of criticism from members of the opposition. I'm joined in studio by Minister of State with responsibility for sport, Thomas Byrne, TD for Meath East, and uh, Jade Nash, Labour TD for Louth and East Meath. First of all, Jade Nash, I'm going to start with you. You're saying that this cost of living measure is a case of too little, too late. Why so? Um, I think uh, the, 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 the fact is that um, this is really a recognition from the government that uh, the measures that were brought in last September weren't targeted enough. Um, what we had argued for it was an increase in social welfare rates of €20. Euro. Uh, that would have um, exceeded uh, the rate of inflation. And the reality is that the reason why we were <coughs> doing, our government was doing what it did yesterday was because it missed the targets uh, last September. But they've given away €1.3 billion. Euro. That's quite <coughs> a generous giveaway in a country the size of Ireland. So you can't really complain. I wouldn't call it a giveaway. Uh, the money is there, um, thanks to the hard work of the uh, Irish workers. Um, tax revenues are extraordinarily high. Uh, we know that uh, there's €2.7 billion euro of unallocated expenditure uh, over from last year, so the resources are there to actually make this uh, kind uh, of intervention. Uh, and in reality, uh, we wouldn't have, for example, extended the um, VAT rate cut to the hospitality sector. Uh, that was announced yesterday because that cost about €300 million. Euro. And we believe that that money would have been better spent uh, going to the people who actually really need the support over the next uh, period of time. This kind of support for the hospitality sector has been around for 
a good number of years now. It was first introduced as an emergency measure, um, but uh, the reality is that we think that that money could have been better used to better insulate uh, those who are on social welfare, for example. Uh, and we wanted to see as well last year, and we, we were very, very clear on this, we wanted to see the Low Pay Commission introduce a higher uh, increase to the rate of the national minimum wage than that, that was introduced because we know we're on a, on a pathway to a living wage uh, that would you know meet people's essential kind of needs. Uh, but the reality is the national minimum wage rate uh, increase was too small. Uh, we have a problem in this country with low pay, Ken. Uh, 20% of all Irish workers are on low pay. So in essence and in summary, the best thing that could be done is rather than actually rely as heavily as we are relying on once-off increases, what we needed to do was to increase the rate, the social welfare rates up to €20 Euro, uh, per payment last year, not €12, Euro, okay. because that's below the rate of inflation. OK, Thomas Byrne, why then didn't you increase the, uh, if you like, the payments up to €20? Euro? Look, the reality is that the package announced last summer, the package announced in the budget, the package announced now is vastly in excess of what the opposition would even have imagined the government would be capable of doing even a year ago. I think the measures that the government have brought in have been extraordinary. There are extraordinary circumstances, and Jed's right. It's because our economy is doing so well, because people are working really, really hard, because the government is managing the economy, trying always trying to attract in foreign direct investment, trying to encourage our indigenous uh, businesses as well. That's why we have this money. Uh, to be able to then uh, redistribute in a fair way. And the redistribution of this money is being done in a way which benefits those uh, on the lowest incomes. That's what we've done, and all the research shows that. Uh, and that's what we want to continue to do. Right, but all the payments that were announced yesterday, they're effectively going to people uh, who basically are not in work, and that uh, there are those who are not on welfare, but they're on incomes that are so low they might as well be on incomes. And they're um, upset, a little bit angry that there was nothing in the package for them yesterday. What do you say to these people who have to pay extraordinary electricity bills, gas bills, uh, fuel costs, and are financially stretched like never before? What I would say is that we've brought in very significant um, credits to electricity bills, which have definitely taken some of the sting out of the tail uh, of, of energy prices. I'm not saying it deals with everything, but they have helped. We brought in extra support for children's allowance, which is a universal payment. Uh, we have reduced the VAT on energy bills. That's universal. Um, we have reduced excise duty on fuel because fuel prices obviously skyrocketed. Now they're coming down uh, and that you know, they would have been even higher uh, without this. And that benefits lots of people across the board. Uh, but the reality is that those who are worse off are older people, are carers, are um, sole parents, are people with disabilities. That's, that's the, that is the reality. And the evidence shows that the money has been used uh, to benefit them. What we want is an economy where people can work, where they can work well, where there's housing provided, which is obviously part of our uh, one of our main uh, planks as well in this government. Um, and this is to give people the best possible life. This, this, this isn't a case of the government saying, oh yeah, we'll take 1.3 billion out and hand it out now. Aren't we so great and generous? This money is available because uh, the economy is generating that money. And the government's role then is to see what money is available and redistribute that in the fairest possible way. Well, Jed, uh, the points there just made by Thomas uh, <coughs> reflects what St. Vincent de Paul was calling for last week. I think uh, Catherine Martin of the Green Party was basically saying the same, that uh, this cohort of people in Irish society should be looked after in this, if you like, mini-budget yesterday. So, hadn't the government been rather generous in the distribution of the money they gave away yesterday? I, I wouldn't call it generous. I mean, government are governing, um, and <laughs> the responsibility of, of, of government 
is to is to redistribute resources to those who um, have the most needs. And we, we do have rather concerning um, dichotomy in our society and in our economy now where there is a cohort of people who are doing very, very well. Uh, and it's a good thing uh, in, in terms of you know, our, our macroeconomic situation. The economy is doing well. The numbers don't lie. But as I repeatedly say, you can't eat good GDP figures and good exchequer revenue figures don't necessarily heat the home either. It's about actually what you do uh, with those uh, resources. And the fundamental critique, Ken, that we have of this package is that, and St Vincent de Paul, by the way, and Social Justice Ireland would be of the same view. Uh, we wouldn't be here talking about this if we were dealing with the structural issues that okay, uh, that, that, involve, that, 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 that that are responsible for pov- the, the kind of poverty we experience. We still have a million people in this country, Ken, who are experiencing co- poverty. We have one in five people who are uh, low paid. Now, in a successful economy, uh, that's very, very difficult to comprehend. So, it goes back to this key point. The best thing that we could have done last September to insulate the the people that I know Thomas is concerned about as well, those who are carers, those who are people with disabilities, people who are uh, pensioners, the people who are carrying the, the, the largest burden in terms of the cost of living uh, increases we've experienced over the last year, 18 months, was to actually increase the rate of social welfare ahead or in line oh, with, okay, the, but, with the but cost of living. Because sure, there's been a real-term cut spend a power if you're on the sure, minimum wage I, or if you're on social welfare. What I'm trying to get at here is if you were the Taoiseach on the steps of government buildings yesterday and you were making the announcement... <laughs> In the main, what would you have done or announced differently? What would have done or announced differently would have been an additional €500 million euro to uh, to the end of the year bring up the social welfare increases that, of €12 euro that were announced last September up to €20 uh, euro, uh, because we believe that not just ourselves but independent observers, independent experts believe that that's the best way to address the structural experiences of poverty uh, in this country. And we wouldn't have actually spent without conditions. We wouldn't have spent that €300 million euro extending again the VAT rate cut for the hospitality sector. That's what economists call a deadweight uh, intervention. What do I mean by that? I mean that uh, at a time of crisis, there's no doubt that the hospitality sector post-COVID required that sort of cash injection to help them get back on their feet. But at the moment, we know the high costs that are involved in terms of somebody staying in a hotel. Uh, we know you know, the high costs in terms of some restaurants, especially in the bigger cities and so on. So I think it's very, very different to justify. That was really a successful lobbying campaign, I think, by the Restaurants Association and others to try and convince largely Fianna Fáil backbenchers of the merits of this. There's no economic argument for it. That resource could have been better targeted to people who need it, need it most. Okay, Thomas, here's one for you. Tracy was in touch and she asks, as a single working person living alone, how do these measures benefit her? She says, I pay my taxes, I work hard, I pay all my bills and I'm seriously struggling at times. No help for workers again. Shame on this government. Everyone is struggling, not just those on benefits. What do you say to someone like her who actually has a job but is struggling to pay her bills? Well, what we've done is um, we're, we're acutely conscious of that. I would say one thing, though, about this narrative that somehow there's a big divide growing in our society between rich and poor. I mean, the research actually shows the opposite, that actually the gap has narrowed substantially over, over the recent decades. But there's more millionaires in the country now than ever before. Yeah, we're taxing them to pay for all of this stuff. I mean, that's the reality. And, and in fact, the gap the gap has narrowed. If you look at it, it's a mathematical formula called the Gini coefficient, it has improved for Ireland. That gap has narrowed. Okay, so but we that, are now more, in terms of income, sure. we're now a more equal society. Sure, but that we means we nothing to, get, to Tracy, who is struggling yeah. to pay her bills. So what we did, what we did for Tracy, a single person living alone. I mean, she obviously would benefit from the energy credits from the last budget. She benefits from the, the maintained reduction in VAT on energy bills. She benefits as well, if she's driving a car, uh, from the maintained reductions in excise duty. And the, the difficulty the government has is when we do reduce these things, 
and they have to be paid for somehow. Um, and, and they pay for education, they pay for our road system, they pay for our healthcare system, all of that, our social welfare system as well. Uh, we have to do that. Um, in relation to the hospitality... But can I come to the yeah, hospitality yeah. sector? Yeah, Jed, what's your response to what Thomas just said there? Mm. I, w- I would imagine that uh, Tracy, uh, and we know that, you know that those who are parenting alone um, are, are probably th- those who are facing the most strain. There are additional expenses... The supports aren't what they might be, uh, and if you're working, you may be working in a lower middle income job. And I'll, I'll say this, and this really kind of encapsulates, I think, the, the, the problem. And, and Thomas is right, I mean, the Gini coefficient is, is narrowing, right? But the, the top 20% cohort are, are doing very, very well. People in the middle are finding it difficult, and people who are at the lo- lower end of the income distribution are finding it especially hard. There's a number of reasons why. Um, and by the way, one of the reasons why the Gini coefficient has narrowed is because of the successive increases to the minimum wage. That's actually narrowed the gap yeah. between the, the, the top 20% and but those even, who are the even bottom people 20% on the minimum, minimum wage and the living wage are struggling. Yeah, absolutely, and this is the point. So, so how do you address that? The last budget didn't address that. I'll tell you why. Um, I'll give you just one example. The government spent a billion euro in, in tax cuts and indexing um, uh, tax bans and so on. And, and we had an issue with how that was managed. I'll tell you why. Um, if you're on a hundred thousand euro and you're single single income earner, um, you, you know you you will benefit to the tune of about seventy five euros per month. If you're on twenty five thousand, you're benefiting to the tune of sixteen thousand euros. What you could have done, for example, to make sure that those who are on lower and middle incomes benefited more from that cut that we were a little concerned about because of you know the limited resources that are there to redistribute. What you do there is actually maybe increase the USC to claw back some of that money from somebody who's on a hundred thousand euro uh, to, to to narrow that gap and to make it that tax um, assistance that people required a little, a little fairer. Um, I think that would have been the best way to approach it. That, that's what was done um, done before, but I think that tax cut was kind of classic Fine Gael and something, you know, I know that some feet of fall backbenchers and Green Party backbenchers were, were, were concerned about. So how you deal actually with the situation that Tracy, for example, you, you increase wages, wages will not increase above the rate of inflation this year generally, uh, and we also need to look at the question of the social wage. And some efforts have been made, to be fair, to actually reduce childcare costs, for example, but that's I don't believe that that's gone far enough okay, in time that needs to um, and, and reduce transport costs. I mean, we know, for example, Eamon Ryan confirmed to me in the doll last week that the tolls in Drogheda are going up again in June. He postponed it uh, to the end of last year. I'll, They're going I'll up come again, to the hard which will really hammer a little bit later on the next period of time. Yeah, but Thomas, I want to come back to you. Lucy was in touch. She says, while these one-off payments to help with energy costs are very welcome, what happens when these payments are scrapped? Energy costs are only going in one direction and that is up to what people are, and the question is, what are people supposed to do uh, when these uh, electricity credits come to an end, even though the cost will still be high? So why then hasn't the electricity credit then been extended? Well, it is. It's still in place, so there'll be a payment in next month for everybody yeah, but uh, after who gets that, an electricity then. bill. Well, what we're doing now is, I mean, look, the wholesale costs of electricity have, have come down. Our retail costs never went quite as high as maybe they should have, uh, if you looked at the wholesale cost they should start to come down at some point. And obviously there's pressure mounting on energy companies to do that. We've also brought in a windfall tax um, to make it's sure... It's not that, in yet. Well, it's, it's been legislated for. That. It's been legislated for. It hasn't uh, to make sure that companies uh, will pay their fair share uh, if they're making super normal profits, because that's absolutely wrong. So what we're looking at now, we've seen the cost of, of fuel go down substantially enough. I'd like to see it go down uh, further. It depends on world markets. And I think that we can see uh, energy costs as well coming down as well. We've got to remove, obviously, our dependence on 
Russian gas. It's been a huge effort in my last job. I was part of that effort uh, to make sure that we can get alternative sources of gas, which is actually where a lot of our electricity comes from uh, in this country. Uh, we've got to do that and work towards renewables, get those electricity bills down. But I am confident that bills will come down this year. If they don't, there will be a further government response, if no doubt. Uh, but we want to make sure that the pressure is put on the energy companies and not necessarily on the taxpayer. OK, I'll come back to the whole issue about the hospitality sector. We'll take a break in the meantime. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. OK, I'm joined in studio by uh, Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil TD for Meath East and Minister for Sport and Physical Education and Jed Nash, Labour Party spokesperson on finance and TD for Louth and East Meath. Thomas Byrne, let me come back to you. We've had the hospitality sector whinging last year that the 13.5% VAT rate was killing their businesses, particularly in light of the legacy from COVID-19. They got the, I suppose, the reduction they asked for. It brought VAT down to 9%. But what we saw was the cost of accommodation going up, uh, the cost of food going up. We had a blatant rip-off in the hotel sector ongoing last year when Garth Brooks came to Dublin and I only read in the papers there last week now that one particular pub in Dublin is selling a pint of Guinness at €9.99 for a pint. Why should they be rewarded? Why should the hospitality sector sector be looked after in this, if you like, mini budget when they have proven that really all they are interested in is greed? Well, I can also give you a list of uh, cafes um, closing or pubs with reduced opening hours. Um, I think things are difficult in that sector. And look, it's, we, this was brought in at a time, I think, by a government that Jed Nash was in, at a time when there was serious economic difficulty. This was seen as a major um, boost to that sector, which does employ a huge amount of people. Now, what we've done is we've extended it to the end of August. I think that's important. I think there's a particular issue now at the moment um, with, with the sector is that a lot of hotels, and this is part of the reason why the price has gone up, a lot of hotels are now full in parts of the country uh, with Ukrainian refugees. What that means is, okay, the hotel is fine from an income point of view because they'll get income from the government or whatever, but the the local pub, the local cafe, uh, other businesses in the area are suffering big time because tourists aren't there. So once again, that's wrong or bad government policy that we've uh, brought. It's not bad. It's, it's no, an, no, it's an international the, emergency that we're I know, dealing with. Like. I know, but th- that's not much joy to somebody who owns a cafe that's no, no, struggling. And that's, and that, exactly, and that's why to that cafe that's struggling, we're saying we're going to keep the low rate of VAT only until the end of August to get them through that summer season. And I think that that is a significant support. It's a significant support to jobs uh, and employment uh, right across the region. And it is only temporary uh, for this year. And there were strong arguments not to continue it after that, but there were very strong arguments uh, to do it during the summer. Uh, so as not to take uh, the legs from under them. I think it's a very, very important industry. You know, we're very good at attracting inward investment. We're very good at attracting tourists to this country. We've got to make sure that the product is there and that people can actually avail of services in, 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 in local areas. Isn't that a fair point, Jed? It's got to, uh, the, the idea is to protect uh, the local cafe and restaurant that's currently struggling. Um, some are, there's no doubt about it. And there's a range of different reasons why they are, but I'm, I'm not that sure that the extension of the VAT rate cut that was originally temporary has now become very, very permanent is the answer and Thomas is right it was introduced in 2011 by, by Brendan Helen and Michael Noonan as a quick way to um, create jobs in a sector that could have done with the support at the time it worked for up until about 2015 
Uh, and then the assessment from the Department of Finance was that this was uh, a dead weight expenditure. What does that mean? It means, as I sought to explain earlier on, it's kind of using state subsidies and supports taxpayers' money to subsidise activity that would happen in any case. So w- what I was doing at that point was just contributing to the bottom line uh, of um, those who are operating um, you know, large hotels and so on and so forth. So if our argument has been all along that if this was to be maintained that it shouldn't be a case of cash without conditions this should have been extended if it were to be extended contingent on for example guaranteeing no job losses guaranteeing decent basic pay in terms of conditions in, in a sector that's addicted to low pay quite frankly uh, and where poor conditions are, are rife. Uh, there's a system in place for many years now under 2012 Industrial Relations Act without boring the listeners uh, uh, that uh, of a joint labour committee that, that, that the structure that can bring employers and unions together in a sector to actually set minimum pay terms conditions above the rate of nas- national minimum wage and, and introduce other things like for example you have small pension plans, sick pay schemes and so on. The hospitality sector is consistently vetoed that they're not concerned some of them um, about the paying conditions of their workers many many are because they, they know that the, the workers themselves the, they put up resistance are, are, are to the their business and so on yeah. and so, so many of them are run like families we know that we, we all have friends sure. and family running hospitality businesses and so on and they're fantastic and they're the lifeblood of our towns and villages but I think some of the bigger operators uh, frankly have a sin to answer for and uh, don't represent very well the interests of the ordinary cafe owner and ordinary restaurant owner and I just think it's very different to justify it's not just me saying that it's economists like Stephen Kinsler and others independent economists you know academics he said, this is just, at this point in time, it's hard to justify. Thomas, let me come back to you. Uh, you gave out 1.3 billion euro yesterday. Uh, and yet, I, I spoke earlier on about the person who's on the low income, but isn't on welfare, who's already financially stretched. And what you go and do then, you've decided that you're going to up the price of petrol and diesel, albeit on a phased basis. So why are you giving out money in one hand and taking it back in the other through the unfortunate hard-pressed Irish motorist? Because the taxes that are charged on on diesel, the taxes that are charged through VAT, uh, go towards providing public services. You know, making sure a health service works, making sure that we have a social welfare um, safety net for people, making sure we have an education system uh, that works. So taxes are just there, and the idea of government and our government is that we do it as fairly as possible, and we think that we're doing that. The research shows that, and uh, the people on the, the 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 richest people, as a proportion of their income, gained by far the least. Uh, from packages that we've done and the poorest uh, gain the most. Um, we're never going to do everything right but the last budget which Jed has been very critical of was the biggest budget in the history of the state by, by some distance and uh, that money is not just there and uh, and there's some just left over. What's happening is there's a huge amount of tax coming in from uh, major corporations and from very wealthy people at the moment. They're paying a lot of tax and we're saying we're giving it to the people who most need it and I absolutely accept and uh, there's a cohort there that feels uh, that we should be doing more. Um, but I think that we are doing more than any political party promised at least a year ago. Um, if you went back a year ago, nobody would have envisaged any of this. But we're in an emergency situation and we have to help people as best we can. And we're doing that. It's not just about the redistribution of money and, and payments. It's also about make, making sure the economy works with good jobs coming into the economy. And I echo some of what Jed said about uh, low-paid work. I think that's a really, really important point. Uh, but we're determined uh, that we get good jobs, good business into the country and that we support uh, small business here as well and that includes the, the hospitality sector to ensure that people can be employed uh, and can get out of that cycle of poverty and we, uh, quite frankly we've done that very successfully in this country uh, in recent years. 
Stephen was in touch. He says he's a single person. By the time he's paid his electricity and rent and his shopping, he's absolutely nothing left in his pocket. He says he needs at least €300 a week from the government. I suppose that raises the question, are the existing welfare payments adequate to meet the current cost of living? No, they, they, no, but but they, they, I mean, we, welfare is designed as a safety net. What we want to make sure is that I'm not clear whether Stephen is working or not, but I, I assume he's not. Maybe in, in light of the last sentence, but what we um, want to make sure is that he has the opportunity to get a good job and that he can then earn more than what he's saying he needs from the government. I mean, that's that's I think what all of us want uh, for everybody in this country that people can earn uh, a good wage, have a good house. And essentially, have the good life, as 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 John F. Kennedy used to say. That's that's what we want for people in this country. See, see what what we what we don't have. I mean, the the the, the, the safety net that, that Thomas speaks of it isn't adequate. And unfortunately, we have. It's not just me saying that. That's Vincent de Paul, who received two hundred fifty thousand more you know calls last year. Million people living below the. Uh, officially accepted um, poverty and more, line. And more and more people going um, to food banks. Yeah. Uh, we, we have, and we've seen a plethora of food, food banks open up across this region over the last um, la- last period of time. I mean, it's a thousand euro more to fill the basket uh, uh, than it was last year. It's two thousand, uh, sorry, two thousand euro more in energy prices, and some support, of course, has been provided by government for householders to 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 to, to do that. But you know. The best way of dealing structurally with the poverty problems we have is to actually make sure that social welfare rates uh, and uh, you know rates rates of pay are indexed uh, in terms of the cost of living. We don't have indexation of social welfare rates in this country. It's every year the the magic kind of release at budget time. This is what it's a political plaything in many many ways. And you know the UK, for example, I'm always critical of how to do things in the UK. But they do index uh, social welfare rates, even though the rates are much, lower, much lower than lower they are here. Are but the point about lower. it is. The principle of indexation, in other words, the cost of living goes up, it's indexed against that cost okay, of living, so that question. insulates people. I have another question for Thomas. This is from Deirdre. I'm a 77-year-old pensioner living on my own, and I've been really cold this winter. I cannot afford to upgrade my heating, even with a grant. I just don't have the money to buy oil. I've been lighting my stove sparingly because coal is gone so expensive. I've had to do essential repairs on my house, which is an old house I do appreciate. What has been done by the government to deal with the likes of me? And I suppose that raises the question is that there is a certain cohort of yeah, people in this country and, and they have nothing, basically. Well, if Deirdre's on the fuel allowance, which she quite possibly is at a, as a 77-year-old pensioner, she's entitled to a free upgrade of her heating system and of her home insulation. So certainly she should investigate that if she's on the fuel allowance. Well, isn't that another problem, that the government doesn't do enough to make the likes of Deirdre aware that well, these making, various allowances anyone, 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 is on, anyone is on the fuel allowance, and yes, Jed is going to come back and say it takes a while, but you, it's the but, best thing you could ever do to your house, so definitely apply for today if you're on the fuel allowance. It's very easy on the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland website. It's there, and I will take the criticism that it takes time, but when it's done, people don't know themselves. Yeah, well, okay. well, 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 uh, there were a lot of cases recently, actually, where you know people's they may have had an upgrade number of years ago, and they actually don't qualify for one now because it was an emergency, and I mean they're not, maybe not as well off as they 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 have been. Issues like windows and doors replacement. I mean Thomas experienced this himself, but Mead County Council, you know, p- people 
looking to get support to do that way down the list. I mean, several hundred people on the list in the, in the Louth area for, for that. And, you know, because of the limited resources that we get centrally from the Department of Housing every year for, you know, housing adaptation grants, that's that's a real challenge. One of the big issues you deal with is, for example, you know, broken down boilers uh, and having those replaced. Somebody who owns their own home, somebody's a pensioner living alone. If they've had some support in recent years to upgrade the house, then they actually may not qualify for that uh, boiler replacement. And we do know, every, you know, people should be encouraged to go and, 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 and retrofit their homes and use cleaner, um, more efficient uh, and more sustainable, you know, sources of, of, of fuel. But for a lot of people, it's often just about trying to get the gas boiler changed. Sure. Finally, Thomas, I'm going to put the last question to you. Um, in light of the money given away yesterday, in light of the current performance of the economy, we've been recording budget surpluses. Are we at this stage looking at a generous budget come the autumn? I don't know. I mean, our entire focus is making sure that we have those taxes coming in, that we can afford to do this. I don't see the British government having a cost of living package at this time. I haven't heard much across the European Union about this. The Irish government has done this last April. We've done it in a record budget in, in October. And now we're doing it again. We're reacting to the money that's available. We're also saving some of the money for the rainy day as well, which large parts of the opposition objected to. And of course, we well. have a national debt to service. And a national debt to service. But our, our servicing costs have actually remained lower. Um, obviously all servicing costs have gone up but interest rates going up but we have actually managed to keep our costs lower um, than they might otherwise be because of the way we're managing the economy so you have to manage the economy ensure business can thrive tax people who can pay the taxes and then make sure that those who need support get that support but we don't want people in social welfare for life who are capable of working we want people to be working in good jobs uh, and in good houses okay lads we're going to have to leave it there thanks very much indeed for coming in it's something uh, we'll return to again in the weeks and months ahead that's uh, Minister Thomas Byrne Fianna Fáil TD for me the East and Minister for Sport and Physical Education and Jed Nash Labour Party spokesperson on finance and TD for Louth and Eastmeath more to come we'll take a break Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. As I say, if you want to get in touch, our number is 0419832000 or you can text or send us a message on WhatsApp at 086-1800-658. Now, according to a statement yesterday from the Trade Union Unite, which represents over 200 workers at the Cargo Tech facility in Dundalk, it announced that a ballot of members had returned an overwhelming 93% vote in favour of industrial action starting with a one day stoppage on March the 10th and apparently there's a dispute ongoing following what Unite says is the company's refusal to engage meaningfully at the Workplace Relations Commission and the Labour Court regarding their proposal to transfer workers under what Unite describes as a fake TUP. That's a transfer of undertaking for the protection of employment uh, and this all means that established jobs paying condition could come under future attack. Tom Fitzgerald, who is the regional coordinating officer with Unite, joins me on the line right now. Uh, Thomas, what's the background to this dispute? Good morning, Ken, to you and your listeners. Uh, the background to this dispute, probably at the heart of it, is a lack of respect for the workforce, actually. It's probably the best way to sum it up. The company uh, enunciated the need to transfer a group of workers to one of their uh, company partners and, and engage with United and our members uh, in what we would say in a lip service fashion in terms of uh, on the face of meeting certain obligations pursuant to legislation, etc., rather than meeting our members in a very meaningful way and say, listen, 
as a business case. The re- the Tom, could I there. could I suggest Tom that uh, we we ring you back uh, because the quality of that line is not too good. So Chris is just going to just call you once again. And as I said, if you want to get in touch, our number is zero four one nine eight three two treble zero, or you can send us a text or WhatsApp message on zero eight six one eight hundred six five eight. As I said, we're just trying to re-establish uh, contact there with Tom Fitzgerald. It's been a Pretty um, poor line. I hope we have you there now, Tom. You there? Yes. Uh, that, that, I don't know what happened. That there. sounds a little bit better. Yeah. So, Barney, you were explaining the background to this. Yeah. So, I was making the point there that the background of it is, uh, in our opinion, the lack of respect for the workforce there. If the company wanted to bring about change, the sensible way to do that is to say, is to meet up with the union there. We have elected reps in place. There's a long established mechanism for doing that and uh, set out the business reasons why that needs to be done and do it in a way uh, uh, that's consultation with a view towards achieving an agreement. Uh, and I suspect if that had been the approach, we wouldn't be in this situation that we're in at this point in time. Um, the people who are there, the, the reps have experienced it around a long time, um, and obviously they have a vested interest in the success of the company. Uh, and so the starting point would be, OK, what's needed, what's required, how do we strike the balance between doing that and not disenfranchising our neighbour our people? Uh, and basic things like, you know, volunteers, um, agreement and how a transfer would take place. But that's not the approach the company uh, took. The company said, we're going to do this. This is how it is in short. And uh, uh, here's a deadline and you'd have to deliver that outcome. And that's, that's disrespectful to workers. So are you effectively saying that there's going to be a transfer of undertaking and you appear to be giving the impression that ultimately what's at issue here is that the parent company is going to reduce your pay and conditions so that you get less than you're currently on and the company, if you like, will increase its profits. Is that the case? No, it's, it's not as simple as that. Uh, the company would say that the transfer has taken place of a group of workers. Uh, they would say that actually there's no erosion in terms of this employment. The informed view of our reps and our members there that over the long term this has negative implications for the terms and conditions. It stands to reason that if you divide people in the workplace from a trade union perspective, they're potentially weaker. Uh, and that was at the heart of this. And as I said, had they engaged in a very meaningful way from the get go, we could have found a way if, if there's a genuine business need to do this, meet that requirement and then do nothing to undermine the T's and C's of our members going forward. But again, the company didn't engage in that basis, and that's what we're hoping that they'll still deal with this stage. Because obviously strike action has been set, uh, there's lots of notes have been issued to the company, to the company for the 10th of March, um, but of course we're hoping that the company will engage in with us in a serious way to avoid that and resolve uh, the issues at hand amicably. Well, now, you say in your statement that the company refused to engage meaningfully at the Workplace Relations Commission and the Labour Court regarding their proposal to transfer workers under what, as you say, you call the fake toop, as it's known in the trade. Uh, What do you mean by that the company failed to engage meaningfully? Ordinarily, when you go to the Workplace Relations Commission, you're going there in this context under uh, conciliation services. And so when you go in there, it's employed that you're prepared to conciliate and engage. There was an unwillingness from the employer to do that. They said the decision has been made, that's how it is. And so that undermines the very purpose of the Workplace Relations Commission. The dispute procedures between the company and the employer is that in those circumstances, 
the matter would go on to the Labour Court for, you know, you know, more formal arbitration and recommendation. The company refused to go there. So the company held not engaged in, in, in the way of the WRC is set up and then have refused to use uh, the state's procedure for dispute resolution fully. Um, so I don't know how that could be characterised. I don't know how you're not saying this is anti-order. Not meaningful. Uh, it, 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 it's fairly clear to us that their approach was a box-ticking exercise. Um, and again, more disrespect to the workers. Okay, well, let, let me read out a statement that our producer, Maggie McGuire, got from the company yesterday evening, and it goes as follows. We were informed through the media that strike action will be taking place at our factory in Dundalk in March. It goes on to say, we await confirmation from Unite that this is the case and the reason for such action. The company goes on to say, we have recently completed a TOOP transfer, which was carried out following a full consultation process, in addition to engagement with the work. Workplace Relations Commission and the Labour Court, Unite was invited to participate in the process. During the consultation process, we duly notified, informed and consulted with employees and their representatives in advance of the transfer coming into effect. The transfer came into effect on the 1st of January this year, whereby we transferred part of our business, namely the fabrication and paint plant, to our global partner, FSP, for surface protection. Under the two regulations, the employees' terms and conditions, including pay, are fully protected. And it goes on to say, as a company, we always abide by relevant legislation and we will continue to engage with our employees to build meaningful dialogue and address their concerns. So as far as the company is concerned, Tom, they're doing everything in relation to existing agreements. Pay and conditions and terms are not affected and that basically this is a non-story. Is that the case? When you when you read that statement, though, um, it actually sounds like that. It sounds like that. There's nothing to see. Everything is sorted here. Everything is fine. So why do more than two hundred workers have a difficulty? You can imagine we don't uh, we don't go around making things up. We 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 take the views and opinions of our membership and we articulate that to employers, um, companies, whatever whatever the case may be. Um, and in these circumstances, some facts held in that are. are I could readily challenge, not least of all, the fact that the matter didn't go to the Labour Court as a matter of fact. Uh, there's other, uh, all our bits and pieces that are not correct. I don't think that's necessarily helpful at this stage. The most helpful thing, I think, for me to say is, is uh, welcome to our last comment, where he talked about I prepared to engage in further dialogue um, with the, the, the workforce, with the representatives of the workers, uh, and that's helpful. So I'm hoping that that's what will happen between now and... Okay. Uh, the tent, because the thing is, this I'm sure you, you yourself uh, will be well aware. I know your listeners will be, of course, Ken. Workers decide to move towards some a serious industrial action, strike action. It's not a simple or an easy process. There's a lot of thinking, there's a lot of hard thinking and discussions, family uh, that goes in, it goes into that. And um, so, you know, if workers have made a decision that it's appropriate to engage in industrial action to move the employer. Um, there's a very serious issue at hand here and it's not sufficient for the company to say actually do you know what we've done everything wrong okay. there's nothing to see here That's not about, it's more like a respect 
Okay, Tom, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm sure this is something we'll return to uh, in the days and weeks to come. That's it. Tom Fitzgerald there, Regional Coordinating Officer with the Unite Trade Union about that dispute at the Cargo Tech Company in Dundalk. And our apologies there about the quality of the line. Such are the hazards of live broadcasting. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Read the cost of living measures. Sam was in touch. He says he's sick and tired of working just to barely get by financially. He's beginning to think that he might be better off on welfare. It is discussing the way PAYE workers are being treated in this country. Sean says those who get up early in the morning to go to work and have been crucified with mortgage increases will get nothing in these measures but will pay more for the pleasure of driving to work. Yet government claims these are targeted measures what a country we live in, he says. Now, the extension of the hospitality 9% VAT rate for a further six months and changes to the temporary business energy support scheme, sometimes known as TBES, uh, will be making it easier for more publicans to qualify, have been welcomed by the Vintners Federation of Ireland. The Federation says the announcements will help ease the financial burden on its members over the coming months, but that once supports are removed, pubs will face an uncertain future. I'm joined on the line right now by Paul Clancy, who is the Chief Executive of the Vintners Federation of Ireland. Uh, Paul, you must be happy uh, to get this extension, bearing in mind that despite calling for the reduction in VAT, some of your members have been pushing up the pint of drink and getting the industry a bad name. Isn't that the case? Well, look, I mean, just a segment of that nine for the moment was really important because uh, many of our, our members' businesses uh, serve food and uh, it was really critical for them to keep that fat nine so they could protect, they could continue to offer value to our customers. Yeah, but I'm that's the, really the, important. Yeah, but the point I'm making is uh, there was a story in one of the papers there. I think it was last week or maybe the week before about a pub in Dublin charging nine euro and ninety nine cent for a pint of Guinness. Surely this discourages people from going to the pub, and then when that happens, you all suffer, and that you've nobody to blame only yourself. Isn't that the case? Well, look, from our perspective, we represent all the publicans outside Dublin. So from our point of view, and certainly from my members' perspective, we want to, we want to you know, have value for money for our customers so that we get as many people into the pubs as we possibly can. I mean, if there are instances like that and, and they're being highlighted in the media, that's not good for the, for the trade, that's for sure. But at the same time, I have to say that uh, the majority of our members are offering fantastic value for money. Uh, in, when people go into their pubs and they want to encourage people in, it's difficult enough to get people in there. And the last thing we want to do is discourage them from going in. Okay, uh, as I say, you represent what are called the rural publicans. These are the publicans outside Dublin City. I think it's the LVA that represents the pubs in Dublin. Um, How tough uh, have things been for people in your sector? It's been very difficult, really, you know, being closed for two years. Now, I have to say we did get a positive bounce back, you know, after COVID. You know, people did miss their community hub, their pub, and I think they came back and have supported the trade very strongly, and particularly that was that was seen during the Christmas period where people were home maybe after not being home for a few years, and that certainly gave us a bit of a bounce. I think the uh, the extra bank holiday there in February certainly helped the, the trade as well. And, you know, but there are some concerns going forward uh, just in relation to, you know, the trade, uh, the future uh, viability of the trade, and certainly things like the extent. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Of the VAT nine until the end of August is very very welcome for members that serve food, and also the TBESS extension of that until the end of May as well is also some assistance really to to members and all businesses really that you know are suffering from uh, astronomically increased energy costs. And um, in light of the numbers going to the pub, I mean we see more and more pubs, for example closing down on Mondays and Tuesdays because the business just isn't there. Are you noticing, if you like, a, a social shift in socialising patterns? Well, look, there has, as I said at the outset there, there has been a bit of a bounce back. Yes, I think, you know, uh, there are some pumps that have closed, say, on Monday and Tuesdays, but that's largely down to the running costs and not having the supports in place to be able to stay open. And when they actually look at their viability on those days, it didn't actually justify them to open. Now, I, you know, with having VAT9 extended, having these things like TB, ESS are actually really critical for businesses because it's really important that we have as many uh, pubs and small businesses all over rural Ireland uh, who serve tourists and local communities that they are open for the full seven days of the week. And that's the, that's the ambition of all our members is to stay open as long as they possibly can. Well, assuming the war in Ukraine continues on uh, throughout the summer, the likelihood is that the VAT rate in the hospitality sector, whether it be in pubs, whether it be in restaurants, whether it be in hotels or guest houses or whatever, is going to increase in the autumn. Once it jumps from uh, 9% to 13.5%, uh, do you see a scenario coming down the line where that increase it could push some businesses over the edge? Well, well, certainly Jim Powell, an independent economic, uh, economist, did some analysis on it, and uh, he estimated that if you were to increase the VAT from 9 to 13.5, you'd lose potentially 24,000 jobs within the hospitality sector. And, you know, that'll still be the case, you know, come um, August or September time, if that, if that is the case. Now, our argument would be that, you know, any country that is serious about tourism, um, and you look at the likes of Spain and Portugal, their VAT rates are in around that 9 to 10% range. So that actually probably is the appropriate place where VAT should be for the tourism and hospitality sector moving forward. But then that's a separate discussion we need to have further down the road, Ken. But uh, ultimately, that would be the, uh, the, the line of argument, if you'd like, you'd like to take, uh, certainly looking into the future, because we believe the VAT at the, at the 9 to 10% is the appropriate level for, for a country that is trying to entice and compete and get tourists into their country. So are you saying that if the VAT rate jumps from 9% to 13.5% come the autumn, that is an excessive jump and could damage the sector? Yes, I mean, that was our argument up a lot, all, all, why we got the extension to it. I mean, we met with Minister McGrath, we met with Minister Donoghue, 
on numerous occasions and we, we, we stressed that to him that, you know, we have 40,000 jobs of the 275,000 jobs in, in, in the sector in uh, working in pubs and there would be a, a risk, absolutely, because ultimately if, if that VAT goes up, it means people have less disposable income in their pockets and that, uh, that can have a, a knock-on effect and the people can't come in and spend their very hard-earned cash in, in pubs and restaurants uh, all, over, all over the country. Well, now, there would be people listening in in the loud meat area and perhaps beyond who might want to know that, seeing as you've been given a bit of uh, breathing space between now and the autumn and you're going to remain on a 9% VAT rate, I mean, can you or your members give some guarantees to those who enjoy uh, a a pint in the pub that uh, your members won't push up the prices between now and the autumn? Well, look, you know, as a federation, we can't speak on individual price and the publicans do do. And unfortunately, we have no control over the commercial reality out there as well. So if there are other price increases coming in from the marketplace, as in from suppliers, uh, we don't have any uh, predicted to come. But that says we don't know. Um, then potentially that, that discussion could happen again, unfortunately. And I wish I could give a, I wish I wish I could give that reassurance to the listeners there this morning. But I can't, unfortunately, give that. We just have to see how things progress uh, during the year. But certainly... Uh, having that nine uh, continuing for the rest of, uh, well, until the end of August and having that support will certainly help publics in their profitability and being able to stay open longer. As a matter of curiosity, um, how many pubs have closed in Ireland in the last 12 months? Yeah, last year we estimated about 150 pubs uh, closed last year. Um, And, you know, there has been, it was a slower decline than the previous year. Um, and there has been a decline over the last uh, 20 years. Well, since 2005, we know that 20% of pubs have declined. So, look, you know, there are pubs out there uh, that are getting out of the business. There's no doubt about that uh, for, for a variety of different reasons. And, uh, look, our, our ambition really is to make the ones that are existing, make them sustainable. Um, and certainly having VAT9 and TBS to support those businesses will certainly help them into the future. Has the time come, perhaps, to have a look at the whole licensing situation? Well, as you know, the sale of alcohol bill is under review at the moment with the Minister, uh, Minister McEntee, um, at the moment. And uh, it, is con- it is under review. Um, it's a very, very long document, about 450 pages long, which is, uh, which is going through the Oireachtas at the moment. And we have represented our members in relation to some aspects of it that are proposed that could have impact our members. So, yeah, you know, there are there are certain things uh, potentially coming down the road in terms of late opening hours and things like that that are being proposed at the minute that we're working through. Yeah, and there's talk of, uh, well, certainly nightclubs opening till six in the morning and I think extended opening hours for pubs. Do you think that'll, if you like, save your bacon, if you'll pardon the, uh, the mixed metaphor? Well, look, you know, when we talk to our members around the country, and that is in cities as well, maybe outside Dublin, uh, um, you know, because that's where our members are based, our 3,500 members. Um, there's no real appetite for publicans to open till 6 in the morning or have nightclubs. There might be a few in the odd city uh, city centres and that, but overall uh, there isn't a huge appetite there and it wasn't something that we were really calling for. But we do understand the nighttime economy and the expansion of that. So from that perspective, we support it. But I can't see a lot of our members taking up on that offer, to be honest with you. Okay, we'll we'll see how the uh, the summer pans out in terms of people going to the pub and prices and so on, and it's something we'll return to in the autumn. That's uh, Paul Clancy there, Chief Executive of the Vintners Federation of Ireland, who represent publicans outside Dublin City. Okay, we'll take a break. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Martin was in touch. He says he doesn't think that the once-off payment approach taken by government is the best way to go. Many people will use the once-off payment to pay off arrears on existing bills, so it will be swallowed up as soon as it comes in and will not bring any relief to the financial strain being felt in many homes. Surely there was a better way of providing consistent assistance spread out over the 12 months of the year. Well, on that very theme, uh, we're returning to the cost of living measures announced yesterday and uh, St Vincent de Paul uh, issued a statement and they said that the €400 million announced in the government support package for social protection measures is welcome, but increasing core social welfare rates would have been more effective in ensuring those on the lowest incomes are not pulled further into poverty. I'm joined on the line right now by Dr Tricia Keelty, who's Head of Social Justice and Policy with St Vincent de Paul. Uh, overall, Dr Kilty, were you happy with the measures announced yesterday? Good morning, Ken. I suppose for, from our point of view, while the temporary supports are welcome, there's no doubt that they will give people short-term relief. But we're really concerned about the longer-term picture here. We don't think they're going to be enough for households to cope with the continued rise in the cost of living. And we're really worried that poverty will worsen over the course of the year because the government decided to go for these one-off payments, um, as your caller just outlined, instead of trying to spread that um, support over the year and really addressing the cost of living that so many households are struggling with at the moment. So we wanted to see increases in the core social welfare rates and then really targeted support for households with children, particularly those headed by one parent. Well, we had Minister for Sport, uh, Thomas Byrne and uh, Fianna Fáil TD for uh, Mead East in this locality on the programme earlier on. He effectively said, look, there's only so much money in the kitty. Uh, They have a national debt to pay off. And uh, even though uh, revenue figures are quite healthy at the moment and there's no uh, cost of living measures being rolled out, for example, in the UK, he basically said, look, we're only giving out what we can afford to give out. The money just isn't there. Isn't that a fair point? Well, I suppose from our point of view that the revenue is there. We are a rich country and it's really about getting the supports to people that are really struggling the most during this cost of living crisis. And the other side of this is that if we don't invest, if we don't protect people from the very negative impacts of poverty, whether that's living in a damp home, which affects your physical health, your mental health, if we don't invest in children, that they're not getting the best start in life, that costs the state much more in the long term. Uh, We published research two years ago which showed that the cost of poverty to the state is in the region of €4.5 billion every year. So if we don't prevent poverty in the first place, you're going to actually spend more in the long term, making up for the damage that it causes to people. Well, the new package includes a bonus of €100 per child for families, €150 for all welfare recipients and an extension of excise duty cuts on motor fuels before the cuts are phased out. I mean, you can't say the government wasn't generous. No, absolutely. And those supports, as I said, will make a difference. They are going to help people in the short term, and that's really important. I suppose one measure that we were really pleased to see was the fact that they've extended the school meals programme. And they're also going to extend the hot school meals programme into non 
guest schools. So those schools that are not designated disadvantage, but there are children in those schools that are struggling with food poverty. So we heard earlier today there was a report published which showed that four in ten teachers report children turning up to school hungry. So investing in things like the school meals programme is really welcome. So we're very positive in regard to that. But I suppose we are looking into the, the longer term now. Food prices are increasing month on month. Um, that's not looking like it's going to slow down anytime soon. Wholesale gas prices are falling um, and we'd urge suppliers to really start passing on those uh, reductions to customers as soon as possible. But the reality is we're going to see prices level out, probably a higher level than they were pre um, the war in Ukraine. So we really need to think about how we're going to strengthen um, our income supports to ensure that they're adequate so that people aren't having to choose between basics like food or heating. That's so important in the longer term as well. Well, St. Vincent de Paul said last week that the measures announced uh, yesterday, uh, you were saying that they should be targeted at the most vulnerable. And in fairness, the the government seemed to have said, yeah, we're listening and we look after that cohort of people. A lot of people ringing in this morning who actually have jobs but are on low incomes, uh, so much so that they're a little bit above uh, the welfare threshold. And they're saying there was nothing in the measures announced yesterday for them. So uh, didn't you achieve what you set out to uh, to get uh, in the packages announced yesterday in that the, the sector that you deal with uh, are effectively, in real terms, better off than those who are on low-income jobs? Well, from, from our point of view, it's really important that we're supporting people in low-paid work, and we've been very clear and throughout all of this that we need to move to a living wage for workers as well. That's critical if we are going to address the issue of in-work poverty. At the same time, we want to see investment in services that benefit everyone. Um, And I suppose in terms of the immediate crisis, it is important to target those on, on the lowest incomes. And it's also important to say that people who are in receipt of social welfare may be working part time as well. They may be involved in caring work. So it's important to recognise that as well. But I think really we need to be both increasing our minimum wage to ensure that it's adequate, that people are supported, that people aren't going out to work and not being able to pay the bills. That's vitally important. That's something that we've called for for a long time as well. Um, Are you disappointed that the government did not extend the electricity credit scheme that was announced in the budget last year, whereby households got, if you like, a a discount, for the want of a better description, of €600 paid out in three €200 chunks? Are you disappointed that that hasn't been extended? So from our point of view, obviously that that electricity credit has been helping people, there's no doubt about that. But what we were saying to government, where we were really seeing the need and what we continue to see the need is in relation to people who are on prepay meters, particularly if they're heating and if they're on a gas prepay meter. So many households, that that credit is running out so quickly because they used to get so much more for their top up even last year that eroded much more quickly. So we would have liked to have seen the government apply um, a gas prepay meter credit. That would have been a really targeted support to those households that are struggling to keep topped up. And then the other area that we're seeing as well is oil, home heating oil is so expensive for households, particularly for those that's their only heating source. So targeted supports in those areas would have been very beneficial because while the weather has been a little bit milder in the last week or so, we still could get very cold weather in March. So it's important that we're proactive on that front so that people can have 
adequate heat in their home and they're not sitting in, in the in the freezing cold um, in the coming weeks. Are you disappointed more wasn't done to deal with the difficulties faced by people who are renting properties because rents seem to be going up and up and up and some people who have to pay rent and are either on low income, some cases people who've lost their jobs are facing a scenario whereby come the end of March they may face eviction and a lot of that cohort may feel there was nothing in the packages yesterday for them. Is that a cause of concern? Absolutely. You know, we're, we're really concerned about people who are struggling to pay their rent, whether those are people who maybe receive the housing assistance payment and have to pay very expensive top-ups on, on top of their rent to the local authority, or people who are renting uh, privately and have to pay the full uh, rental costs that are really, really impacting people. So the eviction ban, we can't have a cliff edge. We need to see that there's support there for people and support to landlords to keep them in the market so that we can ensure people have a place to live and that we can work with them to make sure it's affordable for people. Um, We're concerned that if the eviction ban is is lifted too quickly and the supports are not there, we're going to see an increase in homelessness. Um, And we really need to see the Department of Housing working closely with other departments like Social Protection to ensure there's support there for people that we can prevent that spike in homelessness as well when, when that does end. Okay, well, I suppose the countdown is on to Budget 2024, which will be delivered in the autumn. Uh, No doubt you'll be lobbying the government uh, in the months ahead for uh, appropriate measures come the announcement by the Minister for Finance. I think it's in September or October. What will you be pushing for in the months ahead? So really, from our point of view, it's going to be vitally important that the government are using evidence in terms of where the supports need to be provided, that we are looking at strengthening our social protection system. We've been saying for a very long time now that we need the government to commit to benchmarking it to an adequate level. So that's people who are reliant on it, whether they're retired, uh, recently unemployed, have a disability or are caring, that they have an adequate income to live with dignity. Um, and I suppose that's kind of our core message. And then at the same time, that we're investing in services that reduce those costs for everyone, just not not for not just those on low incomes. So things like we'd really like to see further progress on free primary and secondary education for children, and uh, greater investment in childcare, so reducing those very high costs that many people are faced with, and then again investing in social and affordable housing. That's going to be really critical um, in the coming months and years ahead. So that will continue to be our focus here at SVP. Uh, Jed Nash, who is the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, was in with us earlier on. He said that uh, welfare rises should be linked to inflation. So if the cost of living goes up by 3%, then welfare should go up by 3% and so on. Is that a runner? Yeah, so for, from our point of view, we know other most other European countries do link social protection system to an index, whether that's uh, inflation or the cost of living. So from our point of view, what we've been saying is that it must be linked to a minimum standard of living because if prices rise and it's not adequate, that just keeps people standing still. If we want to really address poverty, we need to ensure that there's a floor that no one is expected to live below and that floor should be benchmarked against the cost of a minimum essential standard of living. 
Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks uh, very much indeed uh, for joining us. That's uh, Dr. Tricia Keelty there, who is the Head of Social Justice and Policy with St. Vincent de Paul. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, just getting back to some of your calls, Mary called in to remind those who are unhappy or feel forgotten in the measures announced by the government to make their voices heard at the next elections. Our public representatives need to be reminded that they are supposed to represent all sectors of society, not just those who have advocacy groups making waves on their behalf. Tom asks, what about foster carers? Most now can't afford to keep going. Why are the government forgetting about them? Why, why, why? Okay, moving on. And the Policing Security and Community Safety Bill, it sounds like a mouthful, will soon become law. And basically what it will do is it will transform on Garda Corner into being a community-focused police service with human rights as its purpose and foundation. It all sounds very good and proper, but the Irish Council for Civil Liberties has concerns about the bill. And I'm joined on the line right now by Liam Herrick, who is the Executive Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. First of all, Liam, before we get into your concerns, will you just explain to the listener what this bill proposes to do? Good morning, Ken. Um, well, this is a very large piece of legislation, as you say, and I suppose we need to go back to the background here to this. As listeners will be aware, um, from the late 1990s onwards, there was a number of various scandals affecting Garda Síochána, particularly with regard to the Morris Tribunal in Donegal. And in 2005, there was an attempt at a piece of legislation to reform the way the guards were managed and overseen with the Garda Act, but unfortunately, there were a number of subsequent scandals and difficulties. So in 2017, the government set up what was called the Commission on the Future of Policing in Ireland. This is really kind of a last chance review to restructure on Garda Síochána. It was led by international experts. They mapped out a vision for reform of Garda Síochána, as you said in your introduction, to be a modern police service centred on serving the community and the protection of human rights. Very good piece of work. Everybody in the Oireachtas has basically supported the vision. Um, And part of the vision was that there would have to be some legislation to change the law in a number of areas. And that's the piece of legislation that is before the Oireachtas today, the Police and Security and Community Safety Bill. It's a big bill. A lot of what it does is address mistakes and, and weaknesses in the 2005 Act, and most of it, I think, is fairly uncontentious and it's very, very uh, positive. Two key areas that we are focused on is one about a complaint system. So you'll know that the, the Garda Síochána Ombudsman Commission was created in 2005 because it was felt you needed to have an independent system of dealing with complaints against the guards. But basically it hasn't worked. Um, I think guards aren't satisfied with it, but certainly members of, of the public are not satisfied with it because it never had enough power um, to conduct independent investigations. It ended up relying on the guards to carry out a lot of investigations, and it wasn't able to deliver results within a reasonable period of time. So we need to get that right now, and we're concerned that whereas most of what's proposed is is good, uh, it, it does weaken the independence of the body that's being proposed. And the other area we're concerned with is the need for independent oversight of the intelligence and security function of the guards. Uh, Ireland is fairly unique in that we have our police service also responsible for national security. In many countries, they separate those two out. 
But if we have them joined together, as we do at the moment, you need to have an independent expert body to make sure that the guards aren't using the excuse of national security to avoid accountability. So they're the two areas that we would be focusing on this bill. And we'd be hopeful that the Oireachtas can can address the weaknesses and get it right. Well, you talked there at length about the principle of independence. But, uh, of course, as we know in this country, um, whether it's uh, the the boards of semi-state companies or various state agencies, all these appointees to these various boards are made by the government of the day. And usually, though not always, but usually the appointees are appointed by the government of the day because there is a political allegiance. So if you're going to appoint um, a new oversight body, uh, while in theory it's perceived as being independent, isn't the reality it may not be independent at all? Well, I think we've made a lot of progress in that, Ken, over recent years that, that, uh, in terms of establishing processes of appointment where you can ensure you have independence. Um, having checks and balances in place. Like, for example, one of the suggestions here is that um, the, the chairperson or the chief could be a judge. So I suppose there's an assumption that judges are independent. But also you can involve international bodies in helping to select them or having you know, the, the top-level appointments committee or the public appointment service uh, carry out their work in a transparent way to ensure that they're separate. We also have to make sure in this particular instance that former members of government or former members of the Oireachtas or former police officers could not be appointed to the Ombudsman Commission. So the appointment is one part of it, but there's another issue too, which has been the real problem, I think, at the core of GSOC up to now, is that they end up getting complaints from members of the public, but then handing them back to members of Angarda Shikana to carry out the investigation, literally the guards investigating themselves. And that's been a situation which has completely undermined the credibility of the Ombudsman model. So I think what we're trying to do now is to separate out serious complaints, such as, you know, allegations of assault against the guards that should never be investigated by members of Angarda Shikana, should always be investigated by an independent separate body. But if you have a complaint that a guard was rude to you, well, that shouldn't be taking up the time of the Ombudsman Commission. The Guard should manage that themselves as a question of quality of service. So I think what we're trying to do this time is, is to separate those two things out, and we hope that that will be possible in the legislation. Uh, can I put a scenario to you? From the, the number of Gardaí I know, one of the, the great frustrations that they sort of will tell you privately is that they identify problems with the way Gardaí are managed and the way the system is managed, and they report up to their sergeant who perhaps reports up the line. And by the time it gets to Garda HQ in the Phoenix Park, the complaint has been watered down so much that, in fact, it's not perceived as a complaint at all and nothing happens. And I'll just give you one example. I don't know if you're familiar with the County Mead setup. Uh, Laytown is just outside the road from Drogheda, uh, but for many years, Laytown was under, if you like, the supervision of Ashburn Garda Station, which is about 15 miles away. And it took years and years and years of complaints to get Laytown under the supervision of Drogheda. And I suppose the point I'm making is the Gardaí identify issues at ground level, but yeah. senior management do absolutely nothing because they're not engaging with the ordinary Garda on the beat. Isn't that a major problem in terms of the way on Garda Corner is managed? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that Kenny, is one of the reasons why we're having this debate again now, because one of the big problems that emerged after the 2005 Act 
with the problem of whistleblowers in Angarda Shikana sometimes disclosing very serious problems and not only them not being taken seriously by management, but people actually being victimised. So I, I think you, you have the issue of complaints, you have the issue of intelligence, but you also have the issue of management structures within Angarda Shikana. What this is proposing is that you will have a strengthened policing authority, but you'll also have a board overseeing the work of the performance of the guards. And one of the issues that I think has been a sticking point consistently within Garda Shiakana is about promotions within the guards as well. How ordinary members of the guards can have the expectation that there'll be a fair and transparent system of promoting people within the, the organisation. I think it's a frequent complaint from ordinary members that they don't believe that that's always been the case. So I, I think that th- there's a lot of internal change. And in fairness, some of that is starting to happen already. But we also have to have a situation where a member of the public can have confidence that if they do have a problem, that it will be dealt with fairly and promptly. Well, isn't that the very reason uh, Drew Harris was brought in from the PSNI and he's appointed some of his uh, old pals from the PSNI into senior management? They've been bringing in, if you like, somebody who's outside the goldfish bowl to look at the problems in the management of Angarda Shiakona to shake it up and modernise it. And uh, the feeling would be that while Drew Harris has good intentions, he himself runs into bureaucracy with the Department of Justice. Isn't that the case? Yeah, and I mean, the relationship between the police and the Department of Justice is, is key in all of this, too. And it's something that we're, you know, also focused on here. I think the way you characterise it, Ken, is correct, because, you know, we, we had a situation, let's not forget, only five or six years ago, where we had two Garda commissioners resigned. We had a Minister for Justice resigned. We had a Secretary General of the Department of Justice resigned, all because of difficulties with policing oversight. So that's how serious it was. And I think that was part of the motivation of bringing out an outside person to lead the guards for a period of time. Like Drew Harris, yeah. Indeed. And we also had a situation where promotion and appointments for senior management were taken away from the guards and given to the policing authority. So I think there was a crisis there, and that was a crisis response. Okay. What the government is trying to do now, though, is to rebuild an effective police system which takes control of its its own fate. So we need to move back to a situation okay. where Garda appointments are made by the guards themselves. And I think you're absolutely right. One of the key issues here and the vision of the Commission of Future Policing is that the Garda Commissioner will effectively be a chief executive who will be independent of the Department of Justice and able to make the key decisions that he feels or she, she needs. And I think okay. we need to, to check as this bill goes through that that actually comes out and we do see control moving away from the Department of Justice on some crucial questions. OK, and the word independence is central in all this. OK, we're going to have to leave it there, Liam. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. That's Liam Herrick there, Executive Director for the Irish Council of Civil Liberties. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. OK, we're back again after that short commercial break. Now, the Irish Defence Forces will train members of the Ukrainian Armed Forces in a new EU mission following a Cabinet decision yesterday. Up to 30 members of the Defence Forces will participate in the newly established European Union Military Assistance Mission. In theory, this is all good news, but it does raise questions about whether or not we have compromised our neutrality. One man with a strong opinion on on this is former soldier and independent Senator Jared Crockwell. Uh, first of all, um, does this compromise our neutrality, Jared? Uh, good morning to your listeners. Uh, you can't compromise what doesn't exist. We are not a neutral country, never have been, so there is no question that anything is being compromised with respect to neutrality. 
Well, then, has the time come for the government to sort of state publicly, look, we're not a neutral country, even though we've, if you like, presented ourselves to the wider world as being neutral? Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, uh, We get this nonsense talk uh, about being politically neutral and militarily neutral. Uh, There are no such concepts that have any standing in international law. So I do believe that the time has come for the open and honest conversation about precisely what we are. Um, My own view is that we have never been militarily aligned. And that is vastly different from being a neutral country. Well, I recall following the 9-11 attacks in uh, New York, Pennsylvania and uh, Washington that um, when Brian Cowan was Minister for Foreign Affairs, I remember him uh, quite clearly standing up in the doll, basically saying that uh, Ireland was now um, assisting the war on terror. Was that a moment when we effectively said we are aligned to the West, usually when the USA is engaged in some military operation abroad, whether it be in Afghanistan or Iraq, to effectively combat uh, the threat of international terrorism? I think on the head, that was a seminal moment in Irish history. There are other moments similar to that um, in Irish history where the issue of neutrality has been discussed or bandied about. Um, and I think, um, yes, I mean, the, the current uh, Tonishta has said, certainly in the case of Ukraine, we are not neutral. What does that mean? Um, Simon Coveney made the same statement. So I think uh, you've hit the nail on the head. It's time for an open public conversation as to what we want to be and how we want to position ourselves in the world. The question, I suppose, uh, arises uh, from this decision that uh, one begins to wonder, where do we stand with what was known traditionally as the triple lock, namely that if Irish Defence Forces were committed on an overseas mission, it would have to be approved by the Dáil, the government and the United Nations. This decision yesterday does not appear to have been approved by the Dáil. So is the triple lock a, a bit of a nonsense at this stage? Well, frankly, the triple lock is a nonsense. I mean, in in the current situation, you're allowing the aggressor, the Russian uh, Federation, to have a say as to whether or not Irish troops could be deployed. I I mean, I think we've got to be very careful, though, in the language that we use, because we are not deploying soldiers into Ukraine under any circumstances. In fact, what we are doing is consistent with our international peacekeeping reputation, and that is we are providing training in bomb disposal and ordnance disposal um, for members of the Ukraine, Ukrainian services. Uh, the number of mines that have been pushed into Ukrainian territory are unbelievable, the sort of numbers we're talking about. And this all has to be cleaned up. And I mean, the Ukrainian view and the European view is that this war will end. And when it ends, we need the place to be um, free of ordinance so as people can move back to their homes. Well, now, last October, the Russian ambassador said that if Ireland provided any help to Ukraine to clear landmines, it would result in Ireland effectively being directly involved in the conflict. I mean, is it time to tell the Russian ambassador to go home and mind his own business? Or are there implications uh, arising from this decision yesterday for our relationship with Russia? 
There are implications for our relationship with Russia. There is no getting away from that. Um, there have been many calls for the Russian ambassador to be expelled from Ireland. I am not one of those that believes he should be. I believe that the large number of staff, I think there are still 34 people uh, in that embassy. I have no idea what 34 Russian people are doing in this country. Uh, so I think it's time we expelled a significant number of them. And I do think it's time that the uh, Russian uh, um, Ambassador was brought in by the Department of Foreign Affairs and put firmly in his box with respect to making threats to this country. Is this likely to drive up tensions between, uh, you know, Ireland's diplomatic relationship with Moscow, or does Moscow really care about Ireland, seeing as it would view this country as being small in the overall scheme of things? Yeah, look, I mean, I've often made the comment that the island of Ireland is for either east or west. It doesn't matter whether it's coming from the west or the east. It is the largest uh, landing uh, craft in in the world, ideally suited strategically for an attack to the east or the west. So I don't think in the grand scheme of things, if, if we ever saw some sort of a major conflict, I don't think anybody would respect Ireland or its position. They would just come in and take what they wanted. Well, now, you raised concerns some weeks back about the sale of aircraft based at Shannon to a Russian entity, and this effectively on paper suggested that Ireland had breached EU sanctions. Um, Has anything more come of that? Um, nothing that I'm well, well. Let me put it this way: queries were put into the three competent authorities, uh, the central bank, the Department of Foreign Affairs, and the Department of Justice. I think it's the third one. Uh, queries were put in. All three competent authorities denied any knowledge of the sale. Had no um, no request had been made by any organisation to facilitate the sale. There is um, a caveat within the the sanctions agreement, if you want, that sale of aircraft could actually take place but that would have to go through the competent authority and certain uh, benchmarks would have to be met um, there has been no request made so I'm assuming and I'm hoping I'm right that the Gardaí are, have been charged with investigating this and if it is a criminal offence to break the sa- sanctions uh, with some fairly stiff um, uh, um, outcomes so I'm hoping that the Gardaí have been assigned to this but as of today I don't have any information in that area. Now, as I understand this commitment of 30 members of the Irish Defence Forces to assist the Ukrainian military, this training will take place in Belgium uh, and a place called Strasbourg in Germany. Are there any signs to, to indicate that the Ukrainian army are in any way I'm trying to pick my words carefully here that they are not up to standard when it comes to tackling the Russians, that they're now relying on the superiority of Western forces, the likes of Ireland, uh, to try and get the job done. Um, I mean, that's a fair question, but I think it's not so much that they're not up to speed, it's that they're using technology that maybe they wouldn't have had access to to the same degree that, uh, for example, in Ireland, we're quite good in the whole area of ordinance and ordinance management, uh, dating back to the troubles in the north and currently drug squads or, or drug 
uh, dealers are using explosives. Uh, so we have quite a degree of expertise there. And uh, I think it's just fair that we would share the expertise with people who haven't encountered that sort of thing before. Similarly, the German tanks that are being sold, you can't just get into a tank and drive off and everything works perfect. You've got to do some serious training in it, uh, not just uh, the driving the driving of a tank, and I've driven one myself, the driving of a tank is quite a serious uh, undertaking at any stage, but the loading of the weapon and the shooting of the weapon are also serious undertakings. There's also some training taking place in uh, aviation in the UK. So I think it's more about bringing them up to speed with modern technology than they're lacking in any way. Finally, Jared, uh, this commitment of 30 members of the Irish Defence Forces to participate in the newly established European Union military assistance mission, do you see this as perhaps being the thin end of the wedge? In other words, uh, the government is committing 30 members now, and if there isn't uh, an uproar or a backlash over the neutrality question, that uh, those numbers could increase in the months ahead? I believe they could. I mean, they have in the past in the in the uh, former Yugoslavia in in uh, Croatia. Uh, we had Irish troops deployed out there in a peacekeeping mission under the United uh, under the European Union rather than the United Nations. Uh, we have worked with the European Union, and indeed uh, the Irish forces have worked with NATO um, in battle groups and various other things. So, uh, going back to your original question on the triple lock, the triple lock is not required to deploy troops into Belgium uh, for the purposes of training. Uh, similarly, uh, if we decide to send more, mind you, my, my question here is in sending 30 people, are we depleting our own uh, resources at home? We are so hard-pressed for members of the military in this country at the moment, something like 1,500 below uh, its establishment. There you go. That's Independent Senator Jared Crockwell there talking to me earlier on this morning. And that just about wraps it up for today. I want to thank Chris Murray on sound, Maggie McGuire who produced. Michael Reed will be back with you tomorrow. Sinead Brazel is next. I'm Ken Murray. And until the next time, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save